12, the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet, and I'm currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. Before we jump into the episode, we have some uh, housekeeping items. Uh, So the first one is that next month, October, is going to be Lady Science's fourth anniversary. Um, We started four years ago announcing it on Ada Lovelace Day. Um, So it'll be four years. Yay! Four extremely um, long years. <laughs> four extremely It feels, it's really long, but it also feels really short, too. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> um, so usually for our fourth anniversary, we don't do a normal magazine issue. Um, we usually do something different. Uh, but we will still have a podcast episode uh, next month. Um, and we'll also have um, some bonus content next month. And then also just going forward, um, since we did reach that second goal level on Patreon during our Pledgeathon, we are going to be releasing bonus content. And um, these aren't going to come out on any particular schedule. They'll come out as we have them. Um, So that you don't miss them, be sure that you are subscribing to Lady Science Podcasts, wherever it is that you happen to listen to podcasts. Um, and then also just remember to, um, rate us and review us on Apple podcasts. Um, it really helps new people see us on the, on the platform. So, um, be sure that you're subscribing so you don't miss any content and then also rate and review us. Um, that would be super helpful. Um, and we are accepting birthday presents uh, for our <laughs> fourth birthday next month. So please send those in the form of cold, hard cash. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention, just uh, a reminder that starting next month in October, we will have um, some special blog posts about sports and gender Yay. and science. And those are all, I think, going to be very awesome. So make sure you're tuned in to the blog. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Follow us on Twitter because that's how you'll find out about them. Yeah. And also uh, we had such a big response that um, you're actually going to do a special magazine issue later on devoted to historical representations or historical pieces about sports, gender, and science, right? Yeah. So in the spring, there will be um, a more like you said, a more historical series of essays. Um, The ones that we're doing in October, some of them are sort of more contemporary or they're kind of like personal things. Um, But yeah, so we had so, so many 
excellent submissions that we sort of broke off a piece of those to do later, um, kind of the way we did with our pain memoir series that we had mm-hmm. some more um, historical pieces about pain um, in a separate issue. So look out for that in the spring as well. Okay, so this month, dun, 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 we're talking about men uh, and masculinity. <laughs> Finally, they have a space and a voice here. I know. It's been <laughs> it's been eleven episodes with no men's except for you know them and their bad ideas. Uh, we're still so like, talking about them and their bad ideas. Let's not get let's. Well, that's true. Let's be yeah. real. <laughs> so later in this episode. In an unprecedented move, we will actually be interviewing a man. We're going to talk to Jordan Bim, who is a historian of spaceflight. We're going to talk to him about astronauts, masculinity, history of technology. Um, and that is going to be a really excellent conversation. But first. <laughs> but first, um, to get us started thinking about these topics is that we want to have kind of a, um, I guess, theoretical conversation about um, what gender studies actually means um, and how that encompasses the study of masculinity and that that doesn't mean that we're now the red pill (laughs) Um, and that doesn't mean that when we talk about men in the context of gender studies or masculinity that we're talking about men to the exclusion of women or to the exclusion um of uh, trans people or something like that. Um, That masculinity is included in this idea of gender studies. Yeah, and I guess I'll just say, this isn't a what about the men thing. Like we didn't get a bunch of emails or anything. Like we are doing this of our own free will. (laughs) (laughs) We're not being coerced by any men's. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes, yeah, anyway. but we did, you know, we, so, you know, we describe ourselves as uh, focusing on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. Y'all hear me say that at the top of every single episode. Um, and in practice, that does, as is demonstrated by the last year of podcasts, uh, mean that we're talking about women and femininity. Um, but we do say women and gender for a reason. And uh, that means that we do look at men and masculinity and how uh, masculinity is constructed and understood as well. Uh, I guess the way that I was sort of taught about this and the way that I think about it is that um, studying men and masculinity is sort of like um, a way to... um, denaturalize I guess what we think of as like the default person that men in you know in at least western society that we're familiar with like are the default person and uh, they are the neutral person and they don't appear you know generally to be gendered at least in the same way that women people of other genders are and so studying the construction of this can kind of help us see how that gets naturalized and the, I guess the kind of like blowback of that naturalization on people who aren't men, you know, how they become Mm -hmm. marginalized by this sort of flattening out of masculinity as like the neutral default person, the, um, the er actor of society. So figuring out how that occurs, how we come to regard men that way, um, can tell us a lot about the 
sort of dynamics of gender. So, you know, we criticize scholars and publications for focusing on white men to the exclusion of everybody else, but I, we can study how that exclusion occurs by looking specifically at, you know, how, how is the figure of this, like, our, you know, we talk about, like, this straight cis white dude as being, like, this problematic <laughs> figure, at least in our work. So, and we want to kind of get behind that and sort of challenge all the assumptions about that, that, like, we see at play in the way that women and other people are marginalized by that. I think something that we, we say a lot that relates to this is uh, that sort of masculinity is constructed against femininity. So uh, it can kind of be a way of masculinity is like defined by what it's not. And this also is one of those ways that it's uh, helpful to think about masculinity in a gender studies context because uh, it can... It can shed light on non-masculine things because so many masculine things are about what they're not. I don't know if that made any sense, but <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way. Yeah. I think that's a good way of describing it. And like, I think that oftentimes, especially in our sort of popular, you know, discourse about this, that we talk about what things aren't masculine masculine or we talk about like femininity as, as like um we talk about like feminine gender roles and we spend a lot, you know a lot of like um gender studies things are specifically about like um feminine gender roles and like the like gendering of institutions in ways that marginalize women and people of other genders but not the way that that works in reverse to the way that um, femininity is constructed against masculinity. So I think um, that's sort of like, there's like a turn toward that too, towards studying masculinity. And it's it's not the same thing, but I think about it kind of the way that like, um, like critical race theory studies yeah. whiteness. Um, I was in order the exact to, same thing. Yeah, make, to make it, make whiteness like strange and unfamiliar and to make it something that, you know, the way that we talk about like, other sort of racialized dynamics we can talk about whiteness that way because then it, it helps us to see how whiteness is naturalized and whiteness is like become default so it's the dynamics are obviously different and they they intersect to like talking about whiteness when you're talking about men is not the same thing about when you're talking about women um but there's sort of a similar dynamic there and it, a kind of um i mean another similar but not the same ways the way that like um scholars of colonialism and empire mm -hmm. um study uh the metropole the center uh and like so instead of sort of going out and anthropologizing anthropologizing you know the colonized people like studying like the heart of the empire to to denaturalize this sort of like um existence and to make it strange and make us understand the dynamics of that from the inside, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, a way to bring this concept to the topic that we're actually talking about today is um, in one of the previous episodes, I think it was the bonus episode that we did with Dr. Hooks. Um, and we were talking about history as a social justice project. And Anna, one of the things that you said in writing about the space program 
is that you don't write about specifically women in the space program. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of an expectation is that if you're doing gender in the space program, that's what you're talking about. Um, But more of what you look at is how like spaces become gendered, how spaces become masculine spaces or feminine spaces um, and how gender is reflected in different aspects of the space program, not necessarily the individual human actors in that story. Right. And that's, that's an important dynamic too, that like gender, gender is something that people can have, um, but it's also something that kind of coheres to other things too, like space or like uh, policy or, uh, material objects like gender coheres to technology in really interesting ways which we're going to talk about a little bit later um but it coheres i think to like um also to things like the scientific method like we can talk about Mm -hmm. that too right well i know something that we've talked about um at least a lot in the magazine i don't know how much we've talked about this on the podcast um but the idea that in the 19th century science was a masculine word. It was a masculine practice and it was placed, you know, separate and above feminine nature. And nature has been feminized since I will say at the beginning of time, (laughs) (laughs) though we tend not to use, you know, such broad sweeping phrases like that. Um, But how those, how this concept of science became an inherently gendered practice that um, people enter into. Yeah. And just to sort of maybe bring this down to some things that also our listeners may have heard about, uh, well, there are many terrible things about living in the year of our Lord 2018. Uh, I think one thing that is interesting and maybe even positive that's happened is that I do think we are now like in non-academic spaces talking about things like gendered ideas or racialized um, ideas and talking about masculinity and uh, especially like now the phrase toxic masculinity is is almost a Twitter meme. Uh, and so maybe if you're having trouble grasping all of what we have, think about the way that uh, when it's productively discussed on, t- on the internet, Um, Toxic masculinity is this idea, and it's not that um, all men are toxic is not what that means, but it's that there are certain constructions of masculinity that are toxic to everyone and uh, create sort of toxic relationships amongst people. Uh, One example, another example of this uh, that I love because I wrote about it in undergrad way back when, uh, is is the idea of the sort of male breadwinner or, like, the male provider, the idea that a uh, part of a man's masculinity is being able to um, economically, uh, financially take care of their family. Uh, and I did work on this in, uh, um, in the context of 19th century, early 19th century, early industrial revolution labor movements uh, in Britain. And uh, the fact that working hours in factories were, um, were restricted for women and children before they were restricted for men. 
and part of the arguments coming from uh, working class reformers about that was, oh, well, uh, men are being demasculinized because, um, or emasculated because women are working and they are not able to get jobs. And the fascinating thing about that is that all of that is a new idea. Um, while obviously there are, again, don't use this very often, but it's probably true, for all of time, been different kinds of uh, <laughs> gender role work divisions. And certainly in kind of the Western world, those have had um, value placed upon them uh, based on gender roles. Um, the idea that there's this like economic provider component doesn't really work before you have wage labor. Um, but then wage labor comes in and uh, people are like paid for the number of hours they're working outside of the home. And then that becomes gendered. And then we become obsessed with the idea of the male provider. So this is something that we think of as like inherent to what men do. That's actually this relatively recently constructed thing. Uh, and I think that that's one of these interesting examples of how masculinity is this thing that is created by social circumstances. Yeah, and I think we've seen um, how um, people have projected that image of the, the provider and the homemaker onto, like, the very distant past, as far as, like, the hunter-gatherer dichotomy, and that they're, because of that dichotomy... There was this idea for a long time that we survived because men brought home meat, you know, <laughs> and um, that that was an image of the of the of our present gender roles that we were imposing on a very distant past for people who lived very different lives. Um, and um, there's new research and different research coming out to show how. That actually wasn't even if the men were the ones bringing home the meat; it was really the women that were putting the caloric you know, um, the calories on the table because they were doing, bringing home so much more, um, than what the men could. Um, and so there's just a lot of, a lot of ways that we have naturalized our present gender roles onto the past. I think that's such a good example too, because I think the, the distance is like, it's just a good one to think with, um, because you have, you know, researchers who um, live in our present society and are embedded in these gender roles already, and they're looking at a past society and they see like uh, a whole bunch of things. They see that these people were nomadic. They see that these people ate roots. They see that these people hunted woolly mammoths or whatever, and they have all of this stuff and they need to sort it somehow and make it make sense. And mm -hmm usually without even thinking about it. You just say, well, men are big and strong, so they did the hunting. That means that the women were probably digging up the roots or whatever. So, like, it's just, like, a way that we organize our information. It's the way we organize our sort of, like, scientific and technical systems without even thinking about it. And that's right. why it sort of can be really dangerous, I think. Yeah, and how that, that categorization um, was an inherently gendered categorization to devalue the work that women were doing in the past because we devalue that now. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's this weird thing where also I think, uh, we want to think that, you know, 
history and progress moves in a linear fashion uh, and that everything can kind of be put on a upward moral swing. And so we say, well, obviously, the further we go in the past, the more divided gender roles are because now we know the gender roles are bad. Um, And... Therefore, like, in order to prove that we have always been progressing, we sort of have to go back in time and show that it was worse back then. Uh, when really all of these things, because they are constructed and have to do with the context in which they exist, it's never quite that simple. I think yeah. that also pairs really nicely, well, nicely, I don't know, but it, like, lines <laughs> up, I think, really well with this tendency we have to also have like a progressive notion of the history of technology that like Mm -hmm. um, way back in primitive times when they only had spears, of course the men did the spearing, but that as you go, you know, into, into the future where we have technology that that's somehow going to like iron everything out in terms of gender roles. But what we find, and there's a very famous book about this, (laughs) about how technology just reinforces gender roles. Um, that kind of thing is not sort of uh, a constant like progressive flow. Um, there's all kinds of snags and um, retrograde motion with that, but we do love a, a nice linear progressive narrative and one that uh, progresses from strict gender roles to no gender roles fits kind of um, evenly in with uh, primitive technology to advanced technology. And so that's one of the things that we wanted to talk about today is the construction of a technophilic masculinity that sort of casts men as naturally more inclined to technology than people of other genders. And so in history of technology, scholars who work on gender have identified this dynamic in sort of the design and construction and use of technology and technological systems. And so uh, an important contribution to this line of analysis, and it's one that I teach my students, is Ruth Oldenziel's essay, Why Masculine Technologies Matter. And I have it as part of a edited volume on gender and technology, which is called, I believe, Gender and Technology. I'll link to that in the notes. It's a, a really useful edited volume. It has a lot of really great um, sort of brief essays. It has Jennifer Light's really important essay on um, computing um, and when women were computers. So anyway, in this essay, Oldenziel um, talks about the history of the Fisher Body Craftsmen's Guild, which was a 20th century uh, organization for young men, and it was connected to the Fisher uh, Automobile Company. It was sort of a this like I don't know much about the history of like young men's organizations in the early twentieth century, but that's a thing. Um, and she uses the history of this guild um, to talk about the ways that um, the associations, I guess, between men and technology, between masculinity and technological skill or competence, and the way that organizations like this that kind of train young men in various skills for living they sort of reinforce these associations. Yeah. So uh, the guild, uh, like Anna said, was a young organization for young men. um, And it was connected to the Fisher car company. Um, The the essay focuses on 
the a model making competition sponsored by the company and open to guild members where young men were encouraged to perform certain masculine values in the process of making and presenting their models. Oldenziel contract contrasts this with um, this with ads for Fisher automobiles that use women's bodies to symbolize the sleekness and attractive curvature of their cars. So in in this sort of symbolism, symbolic ecosystem, women are objectified in relation to technology, while the young men of the guild are taught to be designers and craftsmen. So Oldenziel argues that these constructions of masculinity and technology are intimately connected to economic and social forces that were mobilized at this moment to, quote, short up male identity boundaries in the new world of expanding consumerism precariously coded as female, end quote. Um, she further argues that a technophilic identity for men and boys is constructed by car companies, advertisers, um, etc., at exactly the moment when women begin to have more and more access to technology as consumers. So I think one of the reasons that I use this essay to teach my students is because it does a really good job of showing how um, these constructions of masculinity are, um, they're not inevitable and they don't come from a kind of like amorphous societal ether. They come from the Fisher Car Company. Like it's a very discreet, like specific um, place that you can look and say, this company is using these advertisements and is using this model making competition to tell men how to behave and to give them a a specific role uh, connected to technology that is um, constructed in opposition to what women do. So if technology is sort of um, entering into public life in a really like uh, sort of explosive way, the way it is in the 20th century, where people are or the early 20th century, where you're like able to purchase cars and certain kinds of like appliances. People are working in factories where they're you know running machines and stuff. Uh, the role of men in that world has to be uh, decided and negotiated, and it's done by like specific companies and advertisers, and like there are economic reasons for those kinds of construction. So women are like working in factories and running um, uh, woolen mills and running machines and stuff. And so there has to be a role for men there that kind of um, separates them and shores up this like masculine role that's connected to technology. So one of the things that Oldenziel argues is that by participating in this model making competition the role of like designer and craftsman, not just a consumer of technology, that's what women do, but somewhat, or just an operator of a machine, that's what women do. Men design technology and they, they build these things for women and other people to use. So that's how this kind of um, role gets constructed. And she uses the ads that use women's bodies to show you that like, women are either identified with the technology in like a material way where they're just meant to symbolize how sexy their cars are, or they are, you know, doing this like consuming or just operating machines in factories, but they don't have the sort of like spark of innovation and design that can be kind of inculcated in young men by things like the model making competition. 
Uh, I mean, I was just thinking about that Fiat commercial not too long ago where the, oh the woman God. actually turned into a car oh God, or the car yes. actually turned into a woman. Like, <laughs> <sighs> oh, yes, how far we've come. Is that the same? Are you thinking, is that the same Fiat commercial with the, it's the Fiat 500 one with the Viagra, right? I think so, yeah. <laughs> I just remember, I think that was like a Super Bowl commercial. We were like at a Super Bowl party and like all of the women in the room were like, excuse me? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really bad. Um, and, then, and one of the things I was thinking about while you were talking about um, positioning men as designers and women as consumers is about how that does actually trickle into public consciousness and actually trickles into the way companies hire people. Because if you, if we have this like kind of uh, understanding that these are the things men are meant for, those are the ones who get hired into those jobs. And then of course you have the kind of underlying discrimination that goes along with that. But then you also have a homogenous group of people creating technology for a culture and a society that is not homogenous. And so that's why like feminist critiques of technology are so important so that we can continue to call attention to how these ideas about how technology is gendered and the people who use them are gendered and the people who create them is also a gendered idea but then how that creates like shitty products that not everybody can use or actively hurts other people in a society. And this like what you were saying too, Layla, about the way that this translates into uh, our kind of current like jobs ecosystem for women in tech is that like there's there's people out there like that, that Google asshole who said, you know, his argument was that women are like psychologically unfit to work on technology and that is like that's a like compounding of these gender roles that has been sort of filtered through a kind of like scientific objectivity filter that makes it seem reasonable to a frankly terrifying number of people apparently are willing to buy into that but those like I think that's an interesting example of a way that these kind of um, assumptions about gender are sort of built up like sedimentary rock over time that like it starts with things like uh, boys are the only ones who can build these car models. And then it kind of like, over, you know, over the course of history, uh, you keep adding things to them and adding different dynamics to them and shifting these like very old ideas in ways that make them sort of fit with uh, our current understanding of society. So yeah, if that dude says that it's like psychological, there's research about it or whatever, that like science says it's true, like that just fits a very old idea into our current sort of way of processing the world. And so it's really important to like dig deep and find the kind of roots of these ideas and where they come from. And to show how they're constructed. I think that's, mm-hmm. that is the thing I like most about that essay is that it's, it's so specific to like this one thing, this one sort of group of young men that are participating in this kind of symbolic exercise. And you can, you can see all of these norms being created kind of in real time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess we can 
wrap it up. Seems like a good place to, yeah, leave it. And get to our conversation with Jordan. Okay, so uh, with us today is Jordan Bim. Um, Jordan is a postdoctoral research fellow at Princeton University. His PhD dissertation, Anticipating the Astronaut, focuses on the early history of space medicine and space psychology. And his next project, Putting Mars in a Jar, investigates Cold War era military astrobiology. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Yay. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that you're the first man who has ever been on Lady Science. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll take that as an honor, I guess. Good for you, breaking glass ceilings. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) We're very exclusive about the men we allow on this podcast. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, oh, definitely. Yeah, so I hope you're, you know, suitably honored. (laughs) Very much so. Couldn't be more. (laughs) So this whole episode has been about technology and masculinity. So um, we wanted to just start, I guess, by if you could tell us about your research interest in the history of spaceflight. Um, there are not that many of us out there. So what appeals to you <laughs> about the field and the history of technology in general? Uh, well, my interest in spaceflight goes back to uh, my earliest memory as a child when in 1986, January, I tuned into the launch of a space shuttle and watched it explode a few seconds into flight, uh, killing its crew of seven. Um, that seared itself into my mind. There was um, a teacher on board, Krista McAuliffe, who was going to be the, one of the first uh, teacher astronauts. Um, so that, as a, a child, really impacted me. Within the larger history of technology, um, one thing I've noticed about space history is that it's very technology focused and centric. So you get people writing about rockets and space capsules um, and even space suits, but very rarely do you get someone who's interested in the human inside the space suit or the animal inside the space capsule. So that's what I'm most interested in is sort of human machine interactions within space history, but then also um, approaches like the social shaping of technology, applying that not just to the technologies of spaceflight, but to the human as well, like how how is you know society, politics, and culture reflected not just in the physical manifestations of machines, but in the humans we put inside them and send to space as well. So let's talk a little bit about your dissertation, um, which I'll admit I didn't read all of it. <laughs> I did I read most you. of it. <laughs> um, and I, I read a lot of dissertations, and I have to say this one was actually really easy to read. Uh, and it was uh, really, really just like, I don't know, it kind of broke the mold for me as far as dissertation reading goes. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. That's um, high praise. I really appreciate that. Uh, um, so the dissertation is about the construction of the image of the astronaut in the 20th century. So um, if you could just give us a little bit of a rundown of I mean, it's like over 200 pages. So as much of a little bit of a rundown of your dissertation and maybe just like your main arguments that that you can. Totally. Yeah. So um, the summary of the dissertation goes something like this. Like when I started investigating the history of astronauts, I found out that it's mostly like uh, a space race story that takes place like after Sputnik within NASA. 
And it's focused on like white male military test pilots who eventually became sort of the famous astronaut in the 1960s. But what I learned was that um, instead of focusing on astronauts, I should be focusing on the people selecting astronauts. So the doctors and psychologists in a field called space medicine. And as I read more, I found out that space medicine existed for like 10 years before NASA existed as like a military science within the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy. And that a lot of the key people in military space medicine were actually um, German scientists brought over uh, after World War II as part of Operation Paperclip. So that was incredibly interesting to me because they had their own ideas about bodies and minds and superiority, men and women, that sort of thing that I don't think they sort of checked at the border. They brought it with them. They sort of baked it into the cake. So I decided... What would a history of the astronaut look like that wasn't about NASA and it wasn't about these like white male military test pilots? So I found uh, within the, the decade of pre-NASA military space medicine, these sort of four episodes that each one kind of focuses on an unexpected or different type of test subject that, were, that was used to build up the astronaut that wasn't uh, a white male military test pilot. So the first chapter looks at the first attempt to simulate life in space by putting this sort of unskilled young airman inside a uh, space cabin simulator for a week and seeing how he would fare inside this very you know, tortuous environment. The second chapter focuses on a high-altitude mountain experiment with mountaineers and high-altitude indigenous people in Peru to, um, in, for the purpose of astronaut acclimatization to low pressure. The third uh, chapter takes a detour from human to animal astronauts and looks at the case of Abel and Baker, the first um, primates recovered successfully from a space flight who went on to become America's first celebrity space animals and had this sort of fantastic gendered afterlife. And the final chapter looks at the Lovelace Woman in Space program, which was an unofficial test of uh, women pilots for space fitness um, that has been written about and, and is the subject of a recent Netflix documentary. It's probably the best known of the four episodes I focus on. So each one of those kind of complicates this um, image that we have of the white male military test pilot. It shows that other types of humans were in the mix earlier on. Um, and uh, it brings to the fore, I think, a number of interesting themes about the construction of the astronaut. Uh, so building on that, of course, as you mentioned, one of uh, the subjects you talk about is uh, um, animals. And uh, so can you, can you tell us a little bit about this idea uh, of animal biography and uh, what that can teach us about how we constructed astronauts and, and the human norms? So I, I was fascinated by this animal, um, this animal chapter and this animal episode because it gives us a chance to think about humans without focusing on humans specifically. It becomes like a foil and you can really see some things that you wouldn't normally see. So when I was looking for methodologies, I came across animal biography and that sort of outlined by Helena Pysior, who's uh, an animal historian and animal studies. Um, and she applies it to the, the, the lives of uh, first dogs, so dogs that are owned by the President of the United States of America. Um, specifically Laddie, who was owned by Warren G. Harding in the 20s. But um, So she says there's a number of problems with the way we normally write about animals. The most common one is that we sort of recklessly anthropomorphize them and we ascribe them human characteristics and you know we write about them in that, in that sense. And the other major problem is that there's just not a lot of records about animal lives. So, um, so she says, yes, we need to like 
uh, not ascribe them sort of human qualities when we write about them, stick to the facts, and then we also need an archive that's thick enough to uh, give us enough information about these animals. So uh, while Paisiwa writes about first dogs because they're owned by the President of the United States, there was a lot of things generated about these animals when they lived. The same is true in space science. For some of the animals that were used in high-profile space experiments, um, their lives are pretty well recorded, both in terms of their lives like as laboratory animals and specimens, um, their encounters with the technologies of spaceflight during experiments themselves, and then also their afterlives where there's intense public interest on them. So um, that afforded me an archive big enough to be able to tell the life stories of Abel and Baker in this way. Can you, before we move on, can you actually just explain to our listeners who Abel and Baker are? Because I think a lot of people might know about Ham, but, um, and Leica, of course, um, but, or like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> if you could, yeah, just explain who Abel and Baker are. So it's like kind of my jam to uh, go like one step back before like the thing everyone knows about. So yeah, everyone knows about ham and they think ham was like the first uh, animal in space or the first uh, primate in space. And ham was a chimpanzee that was used by NASA in 1961 as part of Project Mercury. But Abel and Baker were two monkeys that were sent into space uh, two years earlier in, in May 1959. And when they were recovered, they became the first um, the first large animals to be successfully recovered from a space flight. So a lot of people know Laika, the Soviet dog, the first sort of animal in orbit. Unfortunately, she died about four hours into the flight. Um, that was a secret that was that was kept secret for a long period of time, but there's never any plan to bring Leica back. It was always intended that she would die up there at some point. So to actually have animals back alive after the experiment was a big deal because you could do things with them, like you could, you could subject them to further experiments, but then you could also parade them around for public relations purposes, which is exactly what NASA did with Abel and Baker. They had a giant press conference for them at NASA headquarters. They appeared on the cover of Life magazine together. Um, and they sort of had these very long and interesting afterlives as these sort of unwilling uh, representatives promoting spaceflight. And the most interesting thing about Abel and Baker is that both of them were female monkeys, um, but afterwards they were sort of gendered in this binary where Abel uh, was sort of crafted as like the stereotypical astronaut cold warrior and assumed to be male, as referred to as he in like um, whenever it appears in movies, Whereas Baker was fitted into the image of the sort of suburban housewife, and she was confined to an enclosure they called Baker's Bungalow. They even found another male monkey that they called her monkey husband, and they expected her to reproduce. So the focus there was on her reproduction capacity and, um, you know, the study of her offspring. So anyways, it's a fascinating story. Uh, it shows how like um, masculinity in the space program was under construction even before the first humans even flew in space. These ideas were already there and there was sort of already this really important shoring up around um, around spaceflight that, that, you know, it comes out even in the case of, of, uh, of monkeys. Yeah, I thought some of the examples that you gave in the dissertation about how they were gendered was just super bonkers like the and it was like it was super heteronormative as well and that um they described like the like as marriages and weddings and it was it was bonkers i was giggling to myself <laughs> during those whole descriptions <laughs> And I think that's like one of the the interesting things that it hits on, which is like 
you know, we, we oftentimes we ascribe human qualities to animals as an as attempt to elevate them, as an attempt to say, like, they, you know, become more human after a space flight. Um, but, you know, why do we need to think of them as, like, little humans to afford them some respect and care? You know, we should... Um, we shouldn't like be masking what we do to these animals with these like fantastical stories about how they become little honorary humans after they return from the magical land of space or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I also ask, uh, did you, did you find it some, find yourself sometimes having to stop yourself from anthropomorphizing them as you were writing? And what was, what was that like? That's a great question. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, one thing I learned from reading um, Lorraine Dastin and Greg Mittman's book, Thinking with Animals, is that is, is just how common it is to anthropomorphize animals. Like, we all do it every day. I do it with the cats in my house and all that, all that kind of thing. So it was something you had to constantly check yourself with. Um, I did write the methodology sex section before I wrote the actual meat of the chapter. So I had it front of mind, sort of the rules that I was trying to follow, um, Pisces rules. So, um, but yes, you definitely do find yourself. Uh, it's just, it's, it's inescapable. So I think what, uh, what Dastin and Mittman say, which is instead of trying to you know, argue, should we do this or should we not do this? It's more interesting to understand like how, how we do it and why we do it. Um, and in the case of, of space monkeys, it serves a number of different purposes. It makes spaceflight seem natural. It makes, um, you know, the participation of animals in this thing seem like, um, like a transformative technology, like things that intersect with spaceflight become more human in a way, you know, like animals that get used in atomic testing, for example, after the experiment don't get elevated in the same way that animals who participate in spaceflight get elevated to honorary human status. So that's really interesting. And I like that you brought in also how that elevation extends to like what happens to space animals after they died and the different sort of negotiation over, well, what do we do with their remains and should we have a funeral like or do we <laughs> take their skeletons out like that is also like a very um kind of creepy part of the chapter and i saw uh abel uh earlier this year she, she doesn't look great man <laughs> at the museum <laughs> it's really kind of horrifying <laughs> the way that she's preserved yeah i find it um incredible that that she's still on display there um and as part of writing the chapter i visited uh, the graves of all those uh, space monkeys. I visited Abel at the Smithsonian. I visited Baker's grave in Huntsville at the Space and Rocket Center. I visited Ham's uh, memorial at um, the International Space Hall of Fame in Alamogordo, New Mexico, um, just to try and like get a sense of like what these places are like, where these animals are memorialized and presented in in the case of Abel. So. Yeah, I think part of my research was archival. Part of it was also just like going to places. Can you explain a little bit about how even the way that they were memorialized is gendered as well? For, for sure. So, so Abel, the, the monkey that um, sort of became this male Cold Warrior astronaut caricature, Abel died four days after returning from space during a botched, unrelated medical procedure. Um, and then the decision was to, to stuff Abel and, and display her body at the Smithsonian. And in there, you know, she's presented as still part of the experiment inside the the little capsule they had built for her 
and in a way that is like the it is able sort of at work perpetually. Um, whereas Baker got to live this huge afterlife for almost I think twenty over twenty years in captivity after the experiment in a very domesticated space that they called a bungalow that they populated with different monkey husbands at different times. So um, when when Baker died in nineteen eighty four, there was no longer a um, a public taste for uh, um, for taxidermy. Um, she'd become too, I think, too anthropomorphized, too real for them. So they buried her under a marble headstone, which is much more of like a sort of human domestic uh, marker. So whereas Baker, uh, whereas Abel's sort of always at work at the Smithsonian, still forever inside that enclosure with all the wires wrapped around her and her fingers still on the, the telegraph key, um, Baker is sort of laid to rest in a much more pastoral human um, human way. Wow, we went really off script so there. Weird. That's okay. <laughs> That's so great. No, no, so just, that chapter was super awesome. I'm like, yeah. yeah. Thanks. I, I just like what. Um, just the idea of using animal biography to talk about like human gender norms, I think is really awesome and yeah. uh, really well done. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I think the other thing that we we're very interested in um, is the chapter about the uh, Loveless program. And because I think more people are familiar with that than they will be with like Abel and Baker or some of the other um episodes in your dissertation but I think you have a really um like a really fresh take on it so the thing that struck me most about that chapter was this idea of male performance that the women and um, people who are not men have to sort of degender themselves by acting less feminine or acting more masculine if they want to enter masculine spaces and to be perceived as um not gendered, I guess, they have to do this sort of male performance. Um, can you talk about that in the context of the Loveless story and um, this kind of myth, I think, that we're still struggling with that gender somehow doesn't adhere to men, that men are just neutral <laughs> actors, at least in the same way it adheres to women. <laughs> and in the case of astronauts, too, I think that's the case. Definitely. So, I mean, for people who don't know, the Lovelace Women in Space program uh, began in 1959, ran until 1961. It was uh, basically a comparative study where the doctor, Randolph Lovelace, who had designed and conducted the, um, the medical testing for NASA's first astronaut group, the Mercury 7, decided a year later that he would try and find women test subjects and, and uh, put them through what he, what he said was sort of the same group of tests um, in actuality, it was a little bit different to see if they could pass and 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 um, and meet sort of the standards that he had set for space fitness. Um, and famously, um, the first couple uh, women test subjects through the program did incredibly well by his standards. Uh, he judged them fit for space flight, but then there was a big pushback from NASA and from the women themselves advocating to try and get added to the official program that led to the Lovelace canceling the program early and without it sort of being a finished study. So it sort of lives as this, this moment in the history of space flight where um, you know, women tried to get access to the profession of astronaut and were, were denied. But it is a space medicine story. And that's the, what I've tried to highlight in my chapter. Because oftentimes what you'll see is um, you know, people telling the stories of the women themselves, their biographies, um, but then sort of leaving space medicine untouched as sort of this um, you know, neutral, value neutral thing, or even something that you know, was totally valid. 
So if you look at something even as, as innocuous as the title of the Netflix documentary, it's called, the Merc it's called Mercury 13. And I have a number of problems with this title. Um, the, fir the first is that they, they used Mercury, which was NASA's project Mercury. It makes it seem like the women uh, were actually part of an official program when they weren't. And I don't think it helps anyone to, um, you know, gloss over, you know, where, where the barriers really were for them. Um, the other thing is the number 13, which uh, refers to the number of women who passed the tests. And I think that sort of, um, you know, writes out of history the test subjects who didn't pass. And we should remember them as well, because to only concentrate on the ones that passed the test kind of implies that, yeah, these tests were, um, you know, actually valid judgments of who belongs in space and who doesn't. When, you know, I think if you look at the tests, they were made by, you know, an ex-military doctor who whose primary concern before astronauts was like uh, high altitude spy plane uh, personnel and um, and all this other kind of stuff. So his interest in women, I think, is is not so much about you know, equality and achieving sort of gender parity, it, it really has these other Cold War concerns about like weight restrictions, about trying to fly as high as you can with um, efficient human factors, as they would call them. So um, so anyways, yeah, the, the chapter kind of tries to bring out, you know, the, the politics of space medicine and tries to present them, the, the, the tests themselves as political. So your question was actually about male performance, and I haven't got to that yet. But um, I think <laughs> take your time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, the space medicine and the interiors of spacecraft were basically extensions of male-dominated military spaces. So as much as NASA tried to position itself as a civilian agency, it in fact inherited culture, machines, personnel from the military, which was already. Um, super, super masculine. So even something like if you go back into the pre-NASA history of space medicine, look at the space cabin simulator, the very first attempt to simulate life inside a space cabin, um, that was a super masculine space right from the start. And women were not tested in that space. There was only men. So um, when women were finally recruited into uh, NASA in the mid-1970s, and the first women flew in space in the early 1980s, with Dr. Sally Ride being the first, um, there, there was like this um, institutional non-knowledge of women, both at the administrative level and at the medical level, where they just didn't know, like, it was like they didn't want to know, and now that they had to know, they were, like, really just <laughs> uncomfortable with, with these things. So male performance, like, works in so many different ways. It can You can find it just in the way that um, if you listen to women astronauts speak in space, they will try and sound like a, like a fighter pilot or something calling into the tower. And that is, like, very subtle, but that's part of the culture that they sort of assume. So space medicine constructs men as sort of the, the normal or the standard um, component within sort of like a system uh, uh, configuration. And anything that's abnormal is seen as, you know, dangerous and unwanted. So what women do when they finally are allowed access to the astronaut corps is try and eliminate all those things that might make them seem different and might make them seem less desirable than a man to send to space. So you know, that, that goes from everything from suppressing their periods, which were seen by space medicine doctors as one of the most problematic parts of a woman. Uh, and hello, men have leaky bodies too. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's very, in I find it super interesting that these like space, like space scientists in general will go to insane lengths to solve a technological problem. Like they will be like, we got to fit this like round thing into a square hole and they'll like spend all night and they'll come up with the most complicated solution possible, but it'll work. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we want to send a woman into space. And they're like, oh, I, 
I don't want to work on that problem. Like, you know, like when it's a human, they just suddenly shut down and they don't, they don't have that like ingenuity that's so famous for that NASA so famous for. But, um, so yeah, like suppression of, of periods was something they offered Sally ride drugs to do that. They also just totally didn't understand what, what women needed in space. For example, they famously asked her if a hundred tampons would be enough for seven days in space. Um, <laughs> So stuff like that, all the way down to when she landed um, and the crew was sort of coming to a press conference, someone stepped forward with a bouquet of flowers for her, which they had never done for any of the male astronauts. And Sally Ride was like, no, don't give it to me. I don't want it. Um, so just ways like that, they felt the need to um, not demarcate themselves as women. And I think that's unfortunate because, you know, Space is always presented as sort of this utopian place where humanity's future is. But in, in fact, what I've found through my study is that that's a bit of a, of a myth and a bit of a fantasy. And in fact, it's a pretty dystopian place where a lot of these like Cold War um, gender politics are reproduced, both in terms of like heteronormativity and masculine superiority. So um, I think if we are going to, you know, actually create the vision of humanity in space that we really want to, which is to sort of reproduce human diversity as it exists on Earth in space, we have to go back and sort of dismantle space medicine from its very earliest beginnings, because that's when it was sort of all baked into the cake. Yeah, I I think it's super important to highlight, um, and you did this in dissertation, you mentioned it just now, is that the Lovelace program wasn't some sort of like huge step towards equality. Like that was not the, it was not constructed for that purpose. And I think that there's a lot of, um, as the, you know, the Mercury 13, in quotes, um, has become a more uh, public story that more people in the public know about it, is that it is often written about that way. Um, and um, I think it's really important that just because women are allowed somewhere doesn't mean that it's some, you know, uh, just huge step for equality and progress um, when it was kind of doing the opposite. <laughs> totally. And, and Lovelace, you know, gets sort of written about and thought about as, as this sort of advocate for equality when, um, and, and space medicine is seen as sort of this value neutral thing. And like, if only we can appeal to science, then of course, you know, women will be seen as equal to men. And it's like, no, space medicine was a conservative practice from its core, from its very beginning. You know, it was basically founded by Luftwaffe doctors from Nazi Germany. So their opinion of women, like surprise was not very high. And that gets built into all sorts of things like just like even the their lack of interest in women, the design of different machines in the laboratory to not accommodate women's bodies. There's just a million different ways in which their, in their disinterest and their sort of dissuasion of wanting to include women is, is um, apparent. And if I'm not mistaken, it was only white women that were included anyway, right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> there's, there's that as well. And, you know, there's a number of different intersectionalities that, that just get totally ignored. Like, you know, even heteronormativity in spaceflight today is still super problematic. Like the number of people who have been to space is like approaching 600, but the number of people who have been openly queer or out in space is like one or zero. Um, and, you know, Dr. Sally Ride had to come out in a letter published after her death. That's how much like there's still sort of a de facto don't ask, don't tell in NASA, even though it wasn't even part of the military that that law applied to. So so anyways, yeah, like, for example, you'll get like these um, space psychology studies about like long duration Mars missions. And they're like, how do we 
you know, stop intercrew, you know, problems. And they're like, well, we should maybe only send men so that people don't have sex with each other. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, wait a sec. Because men, men don't have sex with each other. Yeah, or like, or we should only send married couples, and then they'll just write about how it should be men and women and not understand that, like, other types of people get married and, you know, whatever. So uh, there's still, like, a very super conservative vein in space medicine. And it also extends to, you know, not wanting to include disabled people in the astronaut corps and that sort of thing. Even though, you know, the, you know, Ability and disability is kind of totally reworked in the zero G spacecraft environment. There's not sort of an interest there in like, you know, trying to select anyone other than sort of who's super normate on Earth. Mm -hmm. um, this value neutral science thing kind of leads into the next question that we had. Um, that one of the challenges posed to the masculine figure of the astronaut is the uh, idea of the quote data body that was created when space medicine practitioners created machine-readable punch cards for the astronaut candidates. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what the data body is and why it was a potential challenge to that uh, astronaut image? So data body is a term that I, I, I invented myself, and um, it was inspired by a course I took during my PhD um, with um, a medical anthropologist named Naomi Adelson called Bodies and Bio, Biotechnologies and Anthropology. So I was really interested in this system of machine-readable punch cards that Randolph Lovelace, um, you know, the NASA space medicine advisor who selected the Mercury 7 and also did the tests on the women pilots and the Lovelace Women in Space program, was also working on. So these machine-readable punch cards were basically going to record all the different types of information that they collected about the human body in these sort of exacting and exhaustive medical text, uh, tests. So in the end, when they're judging, you know, who's going to go into space and who's not, they're not judging a physically present person. They are judging a stack of of basically Scantron cards. <laughs> and um, it wasn't just like, you know, 10 or something. There's 76 cards that sort of represented the human body. And, of course, you can ask questions like what's included, what's not included. Um, you can talk about, um, like, cuts like Karen Brad talks about. You have to choose what you want, what you're interested in. And one thing I thought was super interesting was that Lovelace's cards did include a, um, uh, a mark for sex, either male or female. And that was the first time that that had appeared in these types of cards because they had been used by the military previously, but they'd never included an option for, for sex because it was assumed that it would be only men taking it. And the thing that I thought was sort of interesting was that this can cut both ways. Like, you can say, okay, it's good that they're including women, uh, like, sort of assuming that they might take these tests by putting that on there. But then what that does is that allows you, affords you a sense of control over that. So you could sort all your candidates and basically say any, anyone who ticks that box for women, uh, don't include them. And in the dissertation, I, I, um, I sort of reference a, um, a 1960s TV show about military space operations in which they use a computer uh, punch card system to select candidates, and they don't include um, a control for men or women, and then they find themselves accidentally selecting a woman candidate, and, and all the military brass are in a huff because, like, oh, we can't have this. How did this happen? This is a mistake, and the computer is not supposed to make mistakes and that sort of thing. So... Uh, <laughs> So yeah, the data body is just like a representation of the body as data that then can be judged separately of the body itself. And there's definitely a, a political um, dimension to what you choose to include, what you don't choose to include, and how that affords you different control over the output that you then select. Uh, so before we wrap up, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of shoring up male identity. 
And uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about how astronauts' identity was constructed as against femininity and what that can tell us about how the masculine identity gets formulated. Sure. So, you know, space travel, it really um, reworked American masculine, challenged masculinity in a number of ways. So if you think back to like sort of the Teddy Roosevelt American masculinity, it's rooted in like, like um, it's rooted in like, um, like autonomy and freedom and the environment. Um, whereas spacecraft, like you were basically in, in like cocooned inside a machine and you had almost zero agency. It was all automatic. Um, you know, so there was like a challenge in that to, to masculinity. It did not seem super masculine to a not be in control. So the Mercury seven went to great lengths to try and get control over the spacecraft in certain ways. They were given, um, some control over backup systems in the end. So, so yeah, there was this sort of challenge to like, would the would the person inside the spacecraft be inherently masculine? And it turned out like, no. So in a lot of ways they had to uh, work to um, reproduce masculinity in this space. So that even that, that even like uh, went down to, you know, space monkeys, for example, and the way that they had to be sort of binarily constructed as male and female. Um, there's another way, though, that it gets constructed, and that's in relationship to space as an extreme environment. And, you know, when uh, you look at the history of mountaineering and, um, and polar exploration, uh, the environment is sort of constructed as this, like, hostile enemy that needs to be physically resisted by, like, a strong, masculine body. And it becomes, like, an extension of the military culture that way. So um, not only is it, like, uh, a question of technology and automation and agency, it also becomes a question of, like, a challenging environment and which bodies are appropriate for uh, resisting that. And um, in that moment, in the Cold War, um, there was sort of this culture of masculinity that emerged around resisting physically extreme environments that had become strategic uh, all of a sudden because of the sort of globally scaled nature of of the cold war so that became part of the shoring up of the masculinity of the astronaut as well does anyone have any other questions or jordan do you have anything that you want to say just to like put a little bow on the conversation um, I, one thing i would like to add though um <laughs> is that uh for years i have kept a uh, lady science postcard uh next to my Aww. my writing Aww. desk um, and it's like a really awesome, like just design piece. And I don't know, I found a lot of inspiration in it over the years. Oh, that's thanks. so good. Yeah. Thank so <laughs> thank you for the, the work that you guys do. I think this podcast is awesome and it was a real honor to be asked to, to be part of it. So. Oh, well, thank you so much for thank sharing you. your dissertation with us and sharing your time with us. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. of every episode our hosts will unburden themselves with something in the news their work whatever that's just really annoying the crap out of them so this is one annoying thing hey okay so uh it's my turn this time which means we're going to talk about museum stuff uh <laughs> um so over labor day weekend which will have been a couple weeks um by the time everyone is listening to this, uh, something not annoying but devastating happened, which is that the Brazil National Museum 
burned down or large large amounts of the building burned uh, at this point as of a couple of days ago they are still estimating that they have lost 90% of their collections um, particularly hard hit uh, by the fire was um, were records of indigenous languages um, as well as a lot of their natural history collections. Uh, those were areas of the museum where just the fire raged. Uh, it's pretty awful. Um, it, this is the most significant uh, museum in Brazil, uh, one of the largest both historical and natural history collections in South America. Uh, so this is a pretty devastating loss. And if I'm not mistaken, mistake, mistaken, mistaken, the museum is older than Brazil as an independent country from Portugal, yes. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, it's yeah, like a few years older than it, and and has been seen as kind of like, from what I've read, uh, a symbol of Brazil as an independent country as well. Um, so pretty, yeah. It's really sad, and um, it's sort of been something that as a member of the museum community, like my heart has been with that museum and the people of Brazil lately. Uh, but of course, when terrible things happen, someone out there has to have annoying, stupid responses to it. And so I wanna just talk, I, so I wanna complain about a couple of stupid, annoying responses that I've seen. One of them is uh, something that unfortunately is going to always be uh, bubbling beneath the surface in discussions of museums that are not in the West or historical or natural history collections that aren't in the West. And that's this assumption that brown people, essentially people who aren't Western, aren't able to take care of their collections and that's why they should all just be at the British Museum. I saw some discussions online of people kind of saying that they had seen, oh yeah, well, obviously Brazil doesn't know how to take care of its museum, they've had all these financial crises, da 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 da. Uh, so maybe we should just have all these collections in uh, more stable countries like the UK. And this has essentially been the argument for stealing national treasures from across the world since white people started stealing national treasures from across the world, so it's pretty horrifying The to beginning see of time, you mean? Yes! Yeah. Since the beginning of time. We were using <laughs> since the beginning of time so much in this episode. Uh, but it's just, it's, it feels both inevitable and just, like, really frustrating to see how easily it is for people to make that leap. Especially when, God knows, there are museums all over that don't have their shit together. <laughs> Not always be, and it's often because of lack of funding and because of lack of national support. Like, the U.S. does a really bad job of funding and, and supporting its many museums and historical treasures. And even, even like the Smithsonian is pretty badly funded by the federal government. Um, and, and it's awful on, like, several different levels. Like one, it's incredibly disrespectful to the people yeah. who did the work at that museum. Yes. That, you know, they worked really hard and they did their jobs really well with the means that they had. And that had nothing to do <laughs> with them not being capable of taking care of their museum and taking care of their collections. 
Um, and this idea that like, so like, you know, archaeology and anthropology has always been tied to nation and Europeans and Americans think that they can just go into other people's backyards and like basically pillage their shit and take it back home and put it in their national museums. Right. Um, and so like throughout this, the history of these fields, like people in other countries have been consistently stripped of their right to own their national identity by being able to keep the things that people took out of their backyard. Yeah. Um, and that is basically what this argument is. Yeah. It's saying that we still get, we still have the right to own your shit. Yeah. You don't get that because you can't, you can't play nicely with your toys. Yeah. You've proven that you can't take care of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. I think what you said about uh, being disrespectful to the people who work in the museum is a really important yeah. um, thing to reiterate. The people who work in a museum are not in charge of um, paying for it. That's not how <laughs> museums work. It's not their fault they didn't have the money to take care of the building. Like, we have to be able to, uh, I don't know, be, like, um, careful about, like, and understand, like, the dynamics of, like, how these things are funded and, like... Uh, like the differences between you know different kinds of museum work and who's responsible for what and yeah the curators on the floor it's not their fault uh right yeah so you can talk about the mismanagement of the funding for museums in brazil or whatever but uh even even if you want to make some kind of argument that brazil is like in economic turmoil or whatever sorry but that still doesn't give you the right to lay claim to someone else's shit yeah right you don't get to say that you don't get to (laughs) you don't get to like swoop in and say like well you can't take care you don't get to do that for other people's kids you don't like i don't understand (laughs) this argument is bananas to me like (laughs) what yeah and that's just the let that's like a the it's such a like I don't know. It's one of those like imperial kind of legacies that is just like floating on the surface of our culture that nobody seems to like take any issue with. It's incredible to me that we would assume that like the UK or the US is somehow like entitled to doing this and that our argument is that well like we have to preserve it for posterity. No. We don't have to do anything. We don't get to do anything with other people's stuff. What are yeah. you talking about? Rebecca, that article that you sent from Wired about, well, uh, they should digitize everything. First of all, digitization takes money and it takes labor. And if they're already, you know, thin on both, it's going to be real hard to crank out digitizations that even if we consume for free on Internet Archive doesn't mean it was free getting it there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the idea of, like, digitization as as a substitute for the actual thing or a way of preserving the actual thing is one of those things that makes, I feel like, digital museum people, like, look bad in this way that makes me super angry. Um, Because digitization often is and should be about access, not about preserving things. And there are so many people out there who say digitization is bad because it's a way of um, 
because people think it's a way of preserving things and then we're gonna end up throwing away all this stuff. And I always wanna say, no, 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 that's not what digitization is for. And then something like this fucking Wired article comes down and it's like, no, actually, this would have helped preserve stuff. And I'm like, stop it, stop it. I think it's, this is the first time Rebecca has said the F word on this podcast. <laughs> Welcome, it? Rebecca. We did is it. it. Oh my God, yay. <laughs> we got you upset enough. <laughs> See me being angry about people being stupid. Stupid about museums. Um, it's appropriate. Uh, I was going to say that also, like, digitization does not, like, it is not automatically preserved. You have to yeah. then preserve the infrastructure that kind of holds up the digitized pro- right. product. Yeah. And we are, we have, no, we have no idea how to yeah. do that. Yeah. We are flying by the seat of our pants here oh on God. planet yeah. earth with our internet <laughs> shit. Like we yeah. have no idea what we're doing. What are you just going to build more data centers until the whole surface of the planet is covered in data centers? Yep. Like digital things require physical infrastructure to survive. Yeah. Like it's not just, I don't know what people, yeah. I don't know how people think that works, but like, you have like, servers like, and shit. If, if the server, if the digital, like, the digital file, like, server or, I don't know, we don't use hard disks anymore, but disks or whatever, was still tapes. in, tapes, was still in the museum, they also would have burned up. Right. I mean, which is why part of most digitization plans involve, uh, like, the shit being stored on like five different servers in different parts of the world like even really Mm -hmm. really basic digitization plans often involve that uh which is also super super expensive for a museum that doesn't have money for fire sprinklers right exactly exactly to be fair honestly the wire article does go into more detail about the money and and labor that the process takes than a lot of places but it still concludes that this is all a totally doable, like, rational solution to this problem. It's also, like, we've t- we talk about this all the time about, like, oh, well, there has to be some technological solution to our problem <laughs> that right. is not, that has, right. that is somehow removed from the physical reality of the world. And not only is we've discussed that not true, but there, like, we don't have the technology to preserve all of the information that is contained in a physical artifact. So yeah. say your natural history collection has a bunch of preserved dead birds. Like, that's a thing. Like, how are you going to preserve everything that that, like, actual bird contains? All the data that's inside that. Data that we might not even be looking for right now, but that someone else might look for later. Like, there's no way to preserve all of that. So even if even if that were a solution, there it's not, like, a complete solution. Like... You're only going to be able to preserve probably at most like an image of the bird and some metadata about where it came from uh, and when. And that's probably all you're going to get out of that. Well, hey, if we bring in that 3D body scanner uh, (laughs) that we talked about last time, you'll be able to do that. Sure. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Peter Thiel. (laughs) Peter Peter Thiel to the rescue. Oh, my God. Okay, well, I guess that's a good place to close up since yeah. I just said Peter Thiel to the rescue. <laughs> um, we will all be departing this hell planet right now. Man, just shoot me I'm into the sun. Now. I'm done. <laughs> okay, so um, if you liked our episode today, please, please, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts um, so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at, at @ladyxscience or hashtag LadySciPod. 
For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea for an article, and more, visit ladyscience.com. We are an independent magazine, like we keep reminding you, um, and we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. My pleas get more and more desperate. <laughs> you can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at ladyscience.mag and on Twitter at at ladyxscience. Oh, and we're on Instagram, too. It's oh, and we're on Instagram. Yes. Ladyxscience. Yay!